All right. Well, I am, I am grateful that you're here with you, me this morning. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are beginning a brand new series. But before we get to that, I just want to say thank you to those of you who helped put on our VBS this week. It was, yeah. We had over 70 kids in this room five days of the week, loving on them. I, I want to thank all of the crew leaders who walked with them throughout that week, continued to pray for your kids. Took a week out of your schedule. Um, also for all of the, uh, the, the sports people and all of the crafts people and then all of the, the people who put on our first live action drama that we had for VBS. They spent hours and hours preparing. One of the best stories that came out of this is um, we had a number of kids who accepted Jesus for the very first time in their lives this week. And one of them was Anna Owen's granddaughter, Margot. And, and so Anne is, is driving home, finds out that Margot has accepted Jesus and said, well, I know what we're doing. We're going to go get you a Bible right now. And as they're driving there, she goes, well, did you get a Bible when you accepted Jesus? She said, I did, Margot. In fact, the Bible that I got, I got from somebody I love very much, and it's falling apart. And, and then Margot quotes a line directly from the play that she had heard that day. She said, well, you know, whenever you, follow, by, by, follow, whenever you find a Bible that's falling apart, it probably belongs to somebody who's not. She just quoted back exactly what she heard. It's like, well, all right. We also had one of my, one of my friend's um, children actually heard the gospel message here, went home, and that night while he was in bed by himself, prayed to accept Jesus into his heart. And then the very next day, he comes back, and the, the year before that he had been in VBS, he had been very, he, he didn't want to part with his coins when, when we were bringing coins to help support kids around the world. He didn't want to part with them. This time, he brings his entire piggy bank, like $40 worth of change in dollar bills, and dumps the whole thing in. He goes, I just want to help. And I'm just going, man, the, to see the transformation taking place in these kids' lives. And it's because of a willingness on all of your part to give of your time and love on them. And my prayer has been and continues to be that God would protect those seeds of hope that have been planted in their hearts. And that God would continue to surround them with people who would walk with them because they have a massive target on their backs now. And the enemy is going to come hard after them. And I also just want to, I want to just say thank you to Michelle, who poured not just a week of her time into this thing, but months and months in preparation because she did all the background stuff. So let's just give her a hand. And so the, for those of you who were not able to be here, the, the theme of this week, it was called Arctic Adventure. And the whole focus of it was how can we follow God in the midst of this world? And so we really focused a lot on the Bible, which was a, a map, a, a guidebook, a, a compass for our lives, a light for our, our feet. And what was so interesting as I was diving into this is I was preparing for this new series that we're beginning today um, called True North, months ago I started preparing for it, not realizing that it would align so closely with where we went for VBS. And so it almost felt like this week when I was up here sharing the gospel with the kids in the elementary, um, that I would really be preparing for the sermon series coming up over the next couple of months. So I'm very excited you're going to get what they got in a couple of weeks. Uh, but today we're going to dive in, and it, it seems fitting, given that we just came off of the heels of this this wonderful week called Arctic Adventure, that I begin our new series with a story 
about somebody who is arguably the most famous Arctic explorer in history. And that guy is named Ernest Shackleton. And for those of you who don't know about Ernest Shackleton's life, his time was spent in the Antarctic, down in the South Pole. And he, he actually took three trips down into the South Pole, each time trying to extend humanity's reach and understanding of what was at the bottom of our planet. And each time he got a little bit further, but then was turned back. But what really put Ernest Shackleton on the map, because he wasn't the only one who was exploring this region. There were a lot of guys, some of whom got further than he did. But what really put him on the map was how he handled setbacks. Because time and again, he found himself in positions where everything was falling apart. Perhaps the one that he's most well known for was his third journey down into Antarctica when he and his crew on the the ship called Endurance got snowed in and then iced in in the middle of winter and they had to survive an entire winter down in Antarctica. The ice began to build up around the, the boat and as it started to shift and grind, it actually broke his boat apart into pieces. And he and his 27 crew members spent a winter on the ice, camped out there. And as that ice broke off and began to shift around and then break up into smaller pieces and they realized it was no longer tenable for them to stay on the ice, they jumped onto the three rickety um, lifeboats that they had, one of which was, only one of which was seaworthy. And they took these three lifeboats and they found their way to a place called Elephant Island, which, which is down in the Southern Sea, down in the middle of some of the worst weather, 70-foot waves, horrific conditions, places where larger ships would never think of going because it was so dangerous. And they found themselves on this little island called Elephant Island, not named because there's elephants there, but because it looks geographically like an elephant. And this is a place of ice and stone, just a few penguins, and that's pretty much what they subsisted off of for a season as they were trying to survive just long enough. And and Shackleton recognized that even that was not something that they couldn't survive long enough to be found because A, nobody knew where they were. B, they didn't have enough food to survive. And C, there was absolutely no hope of a ship coming by because no ships ever wandered that low into the southern hemisphere. And so he made what must have been an unbelievably difficult decision. He realized the only way we're going to get help is if some of us go to get help. And rather than sending people to do that, he took that upon himself. And so he and five other men climbed into the only seaworthy skiff that they had, the only lifeboat that could even possibly make the 80-mile trek, I'm sorry, the 800-mile trek from where they were on Elephant Island, northeast up to a place called St. George Island, where he knew that there were a couple of outposts. It was the closest land that had any sort of, of humanity. And so that's where we're headed. And they knew, they knew that there was a very, very slim chance that they would succeed. That he was pretty much signing a death warrant, not only for him and the five men in his boat that were going to go, but for all the men on the island that they were leaving behind, all 21 of them. But what were you going to do? Because it was the only option that they had. It was the kind of choice that only a fool or somebody who was truly at their their last end would make. And so he climbed in the boat with five other men on Monday, August 24th, 1916, and pushed off the beach in in one of the, the few calm moments that they'd experienced. Little did he know that they were going to be rowing right into the heart of a hurricane. And yet, the weather was not the worst of their concerns. 
You see, what, what ended up being the worst of their concerns was navigation. They didn't have GPS. They didn't have much in the way of any sort of maps. They were in uncharted waters. And he had to travel 800 miles through some of the most difficult conditions known to man. Massive waves, icebergs floating all over the place, storms the entire time that sunk much, much larger ships. And yet he never, as they were going, the one thing that they were looking for was some way to steer, some way to navigate. And they only got brief glimpses of the sun and the stars. Something like they only saw the sun four times in the entire three weeks that they were trying to make it back to St. George Island. Only four times. And the stars even less. And yet those brief glimpses were enough for them to be able to figure out from where the sun was and the time of day it was, where the stars were and the time of day that it was, they were able to figure out where they were and figure out the trajectory that they needed to be rowing in. And ultimately they made it to St. George Island after about 20 days at sea. And some four months later, after three tries to get back to Elephant Island on the fourth try, they got back and rescued all 21 of the men that they left behind. And that's what made Ernest Shackleton famous. Because he was able to do the impossible in a time when nobody gave them any hope of succeeding. And yet he did it. And any sailor knows that if you are going to try to navigate in open seas, the number one thing that you need is a fixed point of reference by which to, to navigate, where to, by which to orient yourself, to know where you are and where you're going. So in olden days, back before people had seaworthy vessels, they would simply stay within sight of shore, right? If I can see shore, I know where things are, and that becomes my fixed point of reference, and so I can get to where I need to go. But as you begin to move away from land and you now no longer have sight of land, you need to find a different fixed point of reference. And so they began to look to the stars. And up here in the northern hemisphere, there's one star in particular that we tend to focus on. It's called Polaris, or as we typically know it, the North, North Star, right? And that has saved countless people's lives. Because in the middle of a storm, if you can look up in the sky and see where it is, you can begin to orient yourself around it. You begin to understand where you are in the ocean, you begin to understand where you're headed. Now, I'll admit, probably none of us other than Don Shannon in this room have to know how to navigate by the stars. And yet, it's important for us to have fixed points of reference in our own lives. Because the truth of the matter is, it seems more than ever, we are experiencing life in uncharted waters. I mean, you go back to 9-11, Prior to that, most of us felt like we lived in a world and in a country where we were relatively safe and insulated behind our borders from the sort of guerrilla warfare that you only hear about on television or you read about in newspapers. And then suddenly, in one day, some religious zealots took two or, or more airplanes with people on it who were simply trying to get from point A to point B, and they used them as weapons to level the twin towers, these symbols of American consumeristic might. And they flew another airplane into the Pentagon, a symbol of American military might. And in that moment, our sense of security and safety was shaken to its core. And that's just one of the areas that we've experienced this sort of 
strange, uncharted waters. I mean, take politics. Right now, I have never experienced, and Merv, I haven't had as much experience as you, and you probably would say, yeah, maybe. But for me, this is the, the single most fractious um, season of politics I've ever experienced. It has literally divided families. We've had people leave our church because they had a conversation with somebody and realized that they support one candidate over another, and they're like, I don't want to do life with people like you. And it's like, oh my gosh, we are, we are tearing apart at the seams. And again, that is just a single issue. We, we take police officers, these men and women, who are charged with caring for and upholding the law. And to some, they are viewed as the aggressor. And to others, they're viewed as the victim. And who's right? And how do we begin to communicate when we feel so much friction and so much anger towards one another? Not only that, but things that we have been able to hold on to for centuries. Concepts like marriage and gender are being seemingly redefined overnight. We find ourselves in uncharted waters. And where do we turn? What's the right stance to take as sons and daughters of God? How do we love people that we may disagree with? And how do we respond on social media? How do we respond to family members? How do we respond to people at work or at school who have differing perspectives and differing values? One other thing that makes this difficult is many of the very institutions that we typically would look to in past generations for direction, namely our, the media, our, our, our civic leaders, and even the church has been called into question. And people have a hard time trusting the veracity of what is being said to them. And so where do we turn for hope and direction? What is our true north? Well, I know that it seems like we're experiencing a tremendous amount of change, and we are. And for us, we may be in uncharted waters, but the reality is that change is nothing new. And that people all throughout history have experienced change time and time again. And even if you were to read through the Bible, you would discover that they were a people who were walking through tremendous change. And yet, even in the midst of all of that, they knew where their true north was. Their true north was the unchanging, unyielding, unwavering creator and sustainer of everything. Their God. And they found that he was utterly trustworthy. Now they discovered it in different ways. Sometimes they discovered it the hard way. Like Adam and Eve, our our most ancient ancestors. Who initially trusted God, but the moment that the serpent comes sliding into into the Garden of Eden... You notice that what he doesn't do is simply say, hey, look at that fruit. Doesn't that look delicious? He actually begins by undermining their perception of God's trustworthiness. Did God really say not to touch that fruit? You won't die. Don't you realize he's holding out on you, that he doesn't want you to be like him? And he challenges their trust in him, and suddenly then the fruit takes on this allure. Oh, well, maybe he is holding out on us. And maybe this fruit can give us what we so desperately need, although we didn't realize we needed it before. And they found out the hard way when they bit into that fruit what God was trying to protect them from. As sin and shame came in and corrupted his good creation, corrupted their perception of one another, began to tear apart their relationship. 
Or you take Noah. Noah is a guy who trusted God. Even though God told him, hey, listen, Noah, this world has gotten so ridiculously out of hand and people have gone into following their own heart and going after their own things that I'm going to clean house and start over. But I'm not giving up completely on you. And so I want you to build a ship, the largest ship that has ever been built, to be able to take representatives of every type of animal on it to withstand a storm that's coming. And Noah goes, you do realize that I live nowhere near the coast, right? We're in the middle of the wilderness. But you're God, so I'll listen. And over decades, he builds this ark. And yet his trust grew exponentially the day that those first raindrops began to fall. And that little rain turned into a torrential downpour and the waters began to rise and that ship was lifted off of its cradle And his trust in God grew exponentially. Or the Israelites. These men and women who had only experienced slavery for some 400 years in Egypt. And God said, I'm going to call you out and make you my people. And they watched as God used ten plagues. Each of them targeting a different one of Egypt's gods. To bring Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in the world at that point, to his knees. To the point where he said, fine, leave. You're free. And they watched as God led them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to the edge of the Red Sea. Watched as he separated the waters and they walked through on dry land. Watched as he decimated the most powerful military power of his day, the Egyptian army who were trying to pursue them and take their slave labor back. And he decimated them with the same water that God had parted to let them walk through. They watched as God provided water from a rock, manna, in the wilderness. Their clothes didn't wear out. They saw God's faithfulness and it marked them as a people to this day. If you read through the Psalms time and again, they point back to that moment when they saw God show up as, as the foundation for their trust in him. They understood that God was truly true north. And time and again throughout scripture, they point that fact out. Probably nowhere more obviously and overtly Then in Proverbs chapter 3. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to look at two verses today. These are going to be the verses that will be the foundation for our series. But for today in in particular, we are just going to camp out on two verses found in Proverbs chapter 3. And just so you understand what Proverbs is, it is a book of aphorisms for the most part. And aphorisms are those things like we, we throw them around, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, right? It, it's, a, it's a statement that encapsulates some wisdom, and you can't press it to say it's always going to be true. If I ate an apple every single day, that doesn't mean I'm never going to have to visit a doctor. What it does mean is that if I eat well, if I, am, you know, if I eat healthfully, then I will be in a better chance of not needing to go to the doctor. And the Proverbs are page after page after page of these wise statements, most of which were written by a guy named Solomon. He was the third king of Israel, And he is arguably one of the wisest men who's ever lived. Not because he was born that way, but because when he came face to face with God and God said, what what would you like me to do for you? And he said, God, I just want wisdom to lead your people. And God said, good answer. I'm going to give you a double portion of wisdom. And much of Solomon's wisdom is codified in the book of Proverbs. But the first few chapters of it don't look like that just one thought after another. 
they're not a bunch of aphorisms. The first few chapters of Proverbs are actually a lens by which to read the rest of it. And in the first few chapters of Proverbs, he simply talks about this wisdom, what we're all after, living wisely. How can we grab a hold of wisdom and be led by wisdom? And right in the middle of those first couple of chapters, in chapter 3, verse 5, we come to a passage that you're probably familiar with, even if you would not know where to find it in Scripture. You've probably heard this before. He says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to take the remainder of our time to unpack what Solomon is saying there, what he's getting at, because there's a tremendous wealth of wisdom locked up in those two verses. So let's just begin with that first section. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now, when we talk about the heart, especially biblically, the heart was considered the the epicenter of a person. It was kind of the, the core So it encompasses everything. They don't think that your thoughts are simply in your mind and your heart is simply the seat of your emotions. Everything comes out of a man's heart. From the man's heart, the mouth speaks. The heart was the center and the core of him. So basically he's saying, trust in the Lord with everything you've got. With all of your mind, all your heart, all your soul, it's all wrapped up in the heart. With everything you've got, trust him. But why is it important for us to trust God? Well, it does you no good to have a fixed point of reference for your life if you don't trust it, right? Think about the Israelites for a moment. Remember all that they had seen as God led them out of slavery in Egypt. They'd seen him bring Pharaoh to his knees through those ten plagues. They'd seen him part the waters. They'd seen him decimate the army with those same waters. They'd seen him provide water from a rock, manna in the morning, quail at night. They'd watched him guide them step by step to the edge of the promised land. Had they seen enough to trust God? You betcha. And yet, when they get there, and they send the spies into the promised land, the land that God said, I am giving to you, I have promised it to you, to your your ancient ancestor Abraham, and to everybody since, I've been telling you, this is your land. And two guys come back, Joshua and Caleb. The land is good. It's amazing. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Oh my goodness, it's great. Let's go. Ten guys come back. There's giants in there, guys. Seriously, like big ones. I don't think we can do it. And the people listened to those ten because they were more fearful of the giants than they were trusting in God. Despite all that they had already seen, they feared the obstacles in front of them more than they trusted their true north who was saying, go take the land. And because of that, they spent the next 40 years wandering aimlessly east of Eden until that generation died off. And only two men from the previous generation, Joshua and Caleb, entered into the promised land along with a new generation of Israelites who ended up taking the land and wiping out, pushing out, taking over the land from these giants. It does you no good to have a fixed point of reference if you don't trust it. But how do we learn to trust our true north? How do we learn to trust him when everything seems to be going awry? 
Well, how do I learn to trust a chair? Right? I had this conversation with the kids this week. I said, guys, what does it mean to believe in God? They said, well, to, to, to know that he's true. Well, how do I know that I believe that this, if I say that this chair will hold me up, is it enough just to say it? Well, I guess, yeah, maybe. And I go, so, so I believe this will hold me up. You go, yeah, but sit down. I'm like, no, I don't want to sit down. I don't need to sit down. I, I believe it will hold me up. And they wouldn't let me get away with it without sitting down. When I sit down in the chair, now I know that I believe that the chair will hold me up because suddenly I experience its ability to hold me up. And the same can be said for trusting God. A lot of us would love to pay lip service to our Father God and say, God, I believe. Jesus, I believe you died for me. I give you my life. And we say, you can be the Lord of my life. And then we live as if we don't believe. We live as if we are still the captains of our own ship. And as if we know best. And Solomon says in Proverbs chapter five, 3, verse 5, trust in the Lord, not in yourself, with all of your heart. And don't rely, lean not on your own understanding. Because it doesn't do you... Why can't we trust our own understanding? Because our understanding, our perception of this world is limited by our perspective. We only see a little bit. He sees it all. And so to try to run forward based upon our own limited knowledge ultimately will often lead us astray. I got my brother Joe here visiting from Taiwan this morning, and so I'm going to pull an old one out. We, he and my buddy Chad and my brother Mark uh, went on a camping trip one time. We, we went hiking down to this gorge one day, and it was down this big hill that we had to zigzag back and forth till we got down to the base of it, and we went swimming in this swimming hole all day. And at the end of the day, it was time to head back up. So we started hiking back up. And the, the cutbacks, admittedly, started getting a little old. Because he was back and forth zigzagging up the hill. And my brother Mark decided he was going to be the wise guy. He was going to beat all of us because he felt like he was in better shape than all of us. So he said, hey, I'll see you guys back at the car. And rather than following the cutbacks, he just set his trajectory straight up the hill and began to run straight up the hill, forgetting about the cutbacks. So for the next 45 minutes... Joe, Chad, and I zigzagged back and forth up the hill until we finally made it back to the car. Mark wasn't there. <laughs> Have no idea where he was. For the next 20 minutes, we just kind of cooled our heels waiting for Mark to make it because, you know, he must have decided he was the, the hare, we were the tortoises, he was going to take a nap or something. After about 20 minutes, we started getting a little nervous. Joe got a little bit frustrated. We're like, let's go, let's go find Mark. And so we started backtracking down the hill. And the whole way we're going, Mark! And we're yelling for him. And finally, you know, we're looking downhill, Mark! And finally we hear his voice from uphill. Hey! And after about 10 minutes of him picking his way back down, he finds us. Now here's what happened. Mark thought he knew where he was going. He thought he set the right trajectory and he bolted up the hill right past the last cutoff and straight up to the top of the hill. And once he got to the top, he kept going over the hill and started on back down the other way. And for an hour, he had been wandering aimlessly around this mountain because he had a limited understanding of where he was going. That was not a high point in, in, in Mark's book that day. And, and, and the point of this is, we cannot simply rely on thinking that we know what's best because we can't. And I've often told people following God, I understand that I, sometimes I wish that he would just tell us, here's where you're going and would show us our destination and then leave us to be able to get there. But I know that if he did that, 
I know that if God showed us this is where I'm leading you, I would by my own strength try to get there as quickly and with as few obstacles and as few cutbacks as possible. And in the process, I would miss out on all of the time and preparation that he was going to use as he was taking us back and forth to prepare me for that season of life. Furthermore, if and when I got there, I'd be like, look what I did, and take so much more of the credit that belongs to him. And so I often tell people, you know, listen, following God is like being a child on the top of a hill in the middle of a fog, you know, in the middle of this fog that you can't even see two feet in front of you. You can barely see the next step. But you got your father God standing next to you, holding onto your hand, and all you need to do is hold his hand and let him guide you because the fact of the matter is you can't see two steps in front of you, but he sees where you've come from, he sees where you're going, and he knows exactly where you are because he is above the fog. He can see it all. So trust him. Don't rely on your own understanding. And then we move on. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. Now this is one of those times where I feel like that the... The word that the translators of the NIV chose is insufficient. It doesn't get at the core of what Solomon is saying when he says to acknowledge God because the truth of the matter is, when I think of the word acknowledge, I kind of think of me walking through the commons in my high school and I see my buddies over at the table and it's like, hey, I'm acknowledging their presence, right? I know they're there as I head over to the, the cafeteria to get some food. But acknowledging God is more than paying lip service to him. It's more than saying, hey, I see you as we go off with our own life. I mean, think about Shackleton for a moment. When they saw the sun, when they saw the stars in the sky, they didn't simply go, oh, there's the sun. Oh, there are the stars and continue to row the direction they thought they should row. When they saw the sun or they saw the stars, they stopped and they did the calculations and they reoriented their efforts around what that told them. That was their fixed point of reference. And it enabled them to be able to traverse 800 miles of ever-changing territory in order to get to the one place that they needed to get. And if they had missed that little island, they would have found themselves adrift in 3,000 miles of open ocean. But because they were willing to orient themselves around the stars, they found their way to the destination they needed to be. And in the same way, we cannot simply pay lip service to God. Hey, I know you're there, but I'm going to keep living any way that I want. Because that's foolhardy. That is a wonderful way to make sure that we get lost. So what do we do? Well, like Shackleton with the stars, when we see God, and when we hear his heart and when we recognize that he's saying, don't go there, we submit. In fact, I love that the NIV, when they updated here a couple of years ago, this was one of the few words that they changed. Rather than saying, in all of your ways, acknowledge him, they chose to change it to, in all of your ways, submit to him. Because now we're getting a little closer to the heart of what Solomon is trying to say. It's not simply paying lip service to God. I know you're there. I'm going to live my own life. It's saying, you're God and I'm not, so I'm going to orient my life around you. I'm going to let you have the final say. I'm going to let you be the captain of this ship. And all of my efforts will be oriented around you. Now, 
This sounds a whole lot like something else that Solomon says time and again throughout the book of Proverbs. There's a statement that you guys probably know. It's the fear of God is the beginning of what? Wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Now, I'm not, when we hear the word fear, we automatically think, oh, you know, we have to be afraid of God and go, that doesn't sound like a loving God. Why would he call us to be afraid of him? But Solomon's not saying that you need to be afraid of God. It's not like the kind of fear that my wife has about spiders. He's not saying, listen, the abject terror of God that causes you to scream and throw a shoe is the beginning of wisdom. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's saying the reverential respect of knowing who God is. That's the beginning of wisdom. An understanding that he is God and you are not. The word yare in Hebrew means reverential respect. That's the word we translate fear. It is the kind of feeling I have when I see a train coming down the tracks and I'm looking to go over the tracks and I'm in a hurry. I don't want to have to wait for the train, but I recognize the train is greater than I am. So therefore, I will orient my effort and my time around it rather than demanding that it orient itself and its timeline around me. Does that make sense? Let me put it a different way. This is a story my dad used to tell me. He said there was a, a battleship captain who had been out on rotation, and in the, as they were heading back to port, they got socked in by fog for days upon days. And they found themselves with a pretty good understanding of where they were, but they at this time didn't have GPS, so they couldn't globally position themselves. They had a pretty good idea of where they were. But they also recognized that they were coming into some fishing lanes and that it was likely that there would be boats who would also be lost in this fog, and they just wanted to make sure that they weren't hit. So they were keeping a very sharp eye. And sure enough, one of the lookouts at one point goes, Captain, there's a light dead ahead. And the captain looks and there's this light blinking on and off. It's a ship, probably on a storm, up and down. And he says, okay, signalman, tell that ship, turn 20 degrees starboard. Yes, sir. And so he sends out the thing. Please, ship, turn 20 degrees starboard. A couple minutes later, the ship signals back. Correction, you turn 20 degrees port. And the captain's going, what on earth is this person thinking? Doesn't he know who I am? Doesn't he know who we are? He said, send this message. We are a USS battleship. I order you to turn 20 degrees east. A couple of minutes go by. Signal comes back. I'm a lighthouse. I suggest you turn 20 degrees west. (laughs) The captain turned west because he recognizes to do otherwise would be foolhardy. And the lighthouse is there specifically to protect him from wrecking the ship upon the rocks. To expect the lighthouse to orient itself around him is ridiculous. And in the same way, to expect God to orient himself around us and to enter into our own little diminutive perspective of life and the things that we're focused on and say, this should be your most important thing, God, You making sure that I get a house and that I'm comfortable and that I have the job that I love and that I'm surrounded by people who never get sick. That's your job, God. And we begin to think that our own limited perspective of the world is the most important thing rather than recognizing that he is God and he sees the beginning 
and the end in the same moment. And he knows our part and he knows how he wants to use us. And he knows even how the discomforting or, or the uncomfortable moments of our lives shape us and prepare us for the things he wants to use us. And he knows how he's going to use cancer to be able to help us to minister to somebody else who's hurting. He knows how he's going to take the brokenness in our past and can use that if we are willing to allow him to, to minister to other people or to shape us to be healers at a different stage of our life. He knows how sometimes closing a door that seems like the worst possible thing, God, how could you allow this to happen? How could you let me lose that job? Sometimes is the greatest gift. We just can't see it because we can only see the step that we're on. And he's saying, just wait, trust me, follow me. I know there are giants that you're facing, but I'm with you. And I'm greater than anything you will ever face off against. So trust in the Lord with all your heart, with everything you've got. And don't rely on your own limited understanding. In everything you do, submit to him, obey him. Orient your life around him. And what will happen? He will make your paths straight. That doesn't always mean that they'll be comfortable. It doesn't always mean that they'll be easy. It doesn't always mean that it will end with a good story. It doesn't always mean that we won't die. Sometimes cancer claims even followers' lives. And all of us, unless Jesus comes back, are going to taste physical death. But the hope that we have is that even death doesn't get the last word because he has overcome it. And in this world, we may experience trials, but we can take heart in the fact that he's overcome the world. And that's the hope that we have. So trust him, follow him, submit to him, obey him, and he will make your paths straight. So in the coming weeks, for the next six weeks, we're going to dive deeply into this. Next week, Jeff is going to help us wrestle with, okay, I understand I should trust God and I should follow him, but how do I hear his voice? How do I know his will? And then we're going to start looking at some of the tools that God gives us to help us guide our lives and navigate life in an uncertain, constantly changing world. But for this morning, I simply want to leave you with a couple of questions. Do you trust God? And have you allowed him to be your north star, your true north, the fixed point that you orient your life around? Pushing a little bit deeper here. Are there any areas in your life right now where you do not trust him or you have not been living as if you trust him, where you've been gripping onto it thinking that you need to be in control or that you know the right answer and you're just waiting for God to show up and make it right? rather than being present with him in the midst of that dark valley that feels like the shadow of death? Are there any areas that you have been unwilling to submit to God because, quite honestly, you need this for your sanity? You can't live without this. And to even offer it up to him with the possibility that he might ask you to lay it down is terrifying. And would you be willing to offer that to him today? Say, God, I lay everything down at your feet, recognizing that you are God and I am not, and I want to orient my life around you rather than demanding you to orient your life and creation around me. So let's just spend a few moments worshiping our God and, 
and submitting these things. Now, we're going we're gonna to take offering in a couple of moments. And if you are visiting, please don't put any money in there. What I would love for you to put in is if you have a prayer request or if there is some way that we can be coming alongside of you, you just want to let us know that you're here, put your contact information and we can follow up and let you know about some next steps to get more plugged in here. But let's just spend a few moments worshiping our God and laying our lives down. And if you, sometimes our, our bodies help lead our hearts. If you feel during this time that you just want to get down on your knees, we've got some open space up here, and I welcome you to come and kneel down before your God as a tangible act of saying, I submit to you. You be the Lord. You be the leader of my life. Father, we thank you so much that you are trustworthy. We thank you for the ways time and again that you have proven yourself to be trustworthy in our lives. I pray that you would give us the courage to look inside and and recognize the areas of our lives that we've been holding on to, gripping hold of, afraid to relinquish to you. And would you give us the courage this morning to submit them into your hands, whether it's a relationship, or anything else to lay it down in your hands and say God it's yours help yourself to my life guide our steps and glorify and advance your kingdom Jesus we pray these things in your name Amen